Okay, so hello everybody. Uh, as you may know, there's been quite a few additional restrictions added on here in Israel to uh, in reaction to the to the coronavirus. And one of those restrictions effectively rolled out, although I'm not sure that it was actually dictated, was that there are no synagogue services going on in uh, many places, including Modi'in, where I live. And so while I normally speak in synagogue, or I often speak in synagogue, this week that was not an option. Instead, uh, I'm going to speak to you, and this is one of those religious episodes, so if you're not into that sort of thing, you can go ahead and turn it off. Of course, when I normally speak in synagogue, there's a room full of people who have no choice but to listen to me. And so I'm, I try to be nice to them. I limit myself. I limit how long I talk for. But you all have the opportunity to just turn this podcast off. So I warn you, I'll warn you now, I'm going to be a little long-winded. Of course, if you do live in Israel, chances are uh, your work has been somewhat constrained. Your children are around. And you might just want something to distract you from what's going on uh, in the rest of the world. So I'm going to start off this religiously focused podcast with a quote from this week's Torah portion. They shall wash their hands and feet that they may not die. It shall be a law for all time for them, for him and his offspring throughout the ages. I don't think this is referring to Corona, but nonetheless, it makes for a pretty funny quote. It is not, however, the primary purpose of what I want to talk about today. Because the highlight of this week's Torah portion was the famous sin of the golden calf. Now, the calf was golden, but the actual word in Hebrew is egel masecha, which means an amalgamated, there's different translations, different approaches, I like amalgamated calf. There's a variety of things, a variety of golden earrings brought together to make this idol. And the Jewish people worship it, which seems extremely odd to modern ears. Why would you worship a golden calf? This is obviously something that's moderately insane. I actually don't think it's insane at all. I think it's quite realistic and it's something that we kind of do ourselves nowadays. And strangely enough, I think it's something that's actually relevant to the crisis we're certainly we're currently going through. So as we see the Jewish people emerge from the land of Egypt, we see a trend emerging. Uh, we see a process by which the people become more and more sure of themselves. Before I get to that, I want to just talk about why they went into slavery in the first place. If you look at Parshat Lech Lecha, uh, this is uh, when Avraham makes his covenant, or God makes his covenant with Abraham, we call the covenant between the parts, where the animals are divided in two, and they're actually called neighbors, and each one calls out to the other, and there's fire and catastrophe, and etc., etc., etc. And at the end of this process, there's smoke and furnaces. Uh, and Hashem, God, promises the Jewish people are going to be exiled from their own land, and they'll be enslaved by other people. It doesn't say the Egyptians per se. I actually think that it refers to multiple exiles, uh, culminating perhaps in the uh, in the catastrophe, in the um, in the horrors of the Holocaust. So, the Jewish people are sent to Egypt as the first of these exiles, and and the the predicate for that is that God says, I brought you out of Ur Kazdim, which literally means the destroyers of light. I rescued you, Avraham. I brought you out of this place. And Avraham's response is, how can I know? 
before, he's perfectly happy to believe God's going to give him children and lots of descendants and all those kinds of stuff. But when God says, I brought you out of Orkazdim, Avraham has doubts. And Avraham has doubts, I believe, because anybody would have doubts. Avraham heard God say, Lech Lecha, you go. And Avraham went. So Avraham was the actor. It was very hard for him not to see himself as the actor in that situation. Although, actually, he didn't leave Orkazdim. His father did. And his father left Orkazdim because his older brother, I think, because his older brother died. And so, in a way, perhaps, God is saying, I kicked you out of Orkazdim by virtue of taking your older brother's life. So, Avraham has a bit of a crisis of faith. How can he believe that God brought him out of this place? How can he believe that he himself wasn't the actor? So God sends the Jewish people to Egypt where there's no question they cannot rescue themselves. In all of humankind, there has been one successful slave rebellion that actually stuck. And that was in Haiti. And it kind of stuck. Haitian society remains extremely damaged, despite the fact that they managed to kick out the French. And so what you see in all of human history is that slaves don't rescue themselves. Other people can rescue them. We saw that in the Civil War in the United States. The Northerners brought out the slaves from the South, obviously, of course, with mixed uh, mixed reaction, mixed success in the long term in terms of actually rescuing people uh, from, from the, uh, the problems and the horrors in the South. So God puts the Jewish people in a situation in which they cannot rescue themselves so that when God brings them out of Egypt, there will be no question that they were not responsible. God will say, I brought you out of Egypt. Then people go, yeah, you brought us out of Egypt. That makes sense. Except that's not how things work out. Moshe comes down. He goes up, sorry, on the mountain. He's a little late in returning. And they make an Egel Masecha. It's this golden calf, and in the in the in the Torah, a calf represents a cow represents a nation, and like a calf would represent a young nation. So this is a, a a model of a young nation, and it's made out of the earrings of the people. In the earrings, uh, the symbolism in the in the in the Bible is that gold is used to represent the divine, and so they take the gold earrings from all the people, and of course, the ears are how the people are connected to each other as a community. And so when you take all these gold earrings and you melt them all together, what you are literally creating, symbolically creating, I take back the literal, what you're symbolically creating is an image, an idol of the community itself. The people are worshiping themselves. And God's not entirely certain about whether or not he's going to be angry. And then when the people worship by playing which implies that they're actually worshiping themselves because they're satisfying themselves uh, as a form of worship. When they worship by playing, God realizes that they are, in fact, worshiping themselves. They're not worshiping some intermediary uh, or some stand-in for him or her. They're they're actually worshiping themselves. And we saw the build-up towards this beforehand uh, in, in, the, in the Song of the Sea. They, see, they sing, Aziv Zimratika Vehilili Shua. My strength and the Song of God brought us out, um, uh, was our redemption, was our, was, was our salvation. 
And so we see a lot of the uh, commentators say that that Aziz, the, the my strength portion of that is actually uh, poetic license or it's not really there or whatever it happens to be, but it seems to be the people honoring themselves. Uh, and then later on, they have an offering where they bring an offering to God with a covenant and they take the blood of the offering, which represents the the, uh, the core force of the animal. And in, in all other offerings, they only sprinkle it on the altar, but here they sprinkle it on the people, making them equal in some way to God. And they build pillars representing each of these tribes. Uh, and so you end up with this growing sense of self-confidence of the people. And then when Moshe doesn't come down, the people make a God of themselves. And we see more evidence of that a little further on. Um, Moshe says to Aaron, to his brother, um, that you uh, you borrowed the people. Paro thought, thought of himself as, as an equivalent to God, uh, as, as a God in his own right, as a divine being. Uh, and Aaron made the people into a divine being in their own minds. Of course, that wasn't their reality. And so what is Moshe's response? Well, among his other responses, one of the things he does is he says that each man should kill his brother and his neighbor. This is Moshe, and this is brutal, of course, but this is Moshe talking about tearing the community apart. The community worshipped itself, and he tore it apart. At our family tour reading, somebody asked, who were the 3,000 people killed? 3,000 people out of 2 million. These are, as they would say, in the age of corona, very small numbers, but 3,000 people killed. Uh, and in the age of corona, the people who would be most dangerous would be your super spreaders. Uh, and in the age of a community that worships itself, these are the super social spreaders. These are the social networkers that bring everyone together. And with the death of these 3,000 people, the people lose their strength. They suddenly need God. They suddenly need God to accompany them to Israel. They're not standing by themselves as strongly as they were before. So what we have is this path that's being described where the people, it's an entirely human and reasonable uh, thing, something we can identify with very much so in modern times. We worship ourselves. We see our own power. And this can lead us down very dangerous paths. I see, for example, a very highly leveraged society in which high levels of debt combined with a few months of economic inactivity will lead to the bankrupting of a huge number of companies because they can't pay their debts, because they were convinced when they borrowed the money that they had a, an ability to predict the future that would protect them from actually going bankrupt. But we can't actually predict the future. We can't actually know what's going to happen. So people should be able to invest in companies, but when we borrow money, when we borrow money for debt, for, for houses, for whatever it happens to be, we open ourselves up to tremendous trouble when we can't pay for those things that we, when we depended on the future being predictable for. So reality hits, and all of a sudden, the world we defined, in which we, in some way, worshipped and believed in the, the global reality that we created for ourselves comes crashing down. I've seen on social media and on traditional media, people feeling a lack of control. I actually saw a newspaper headline where somebody said that they were more frightened of corona than a war or terrorism. And this is in Israel, where war and terrorism are very real things. I think what people are really fearing, actually, is not the deaths that occur, because of course many things can kill more people. Malaria kills more people than, than Corona will for sure. Um, but I think what people really fear is the loss of control. And in addition, they fear the unknown. 
we understand clarifying battles, right? You have a battle between good and evil. You've, you've got something where there's obviously a good side and obviously a bad side, and we stand with the good. And in history, that's how we write our wars. That's how we write our battles. We see them that way. But at the time, almost nothing works out that way. Almost everything is far more confusing, where you're making moral judgments and moral decisions that uh, that are inherently difficult to make. Do you save your family at the cost of something else? How do you make these decisions, even for World War II, where it seems so obvious? It isn't. It's very difficult to understand and put yourselves in the situations of people on these stressors and understand how to be good when it's not so clear what road you can take. In this case, it's even more so. We are facing the unknown. We have uncertainty. Coronavirus may not be that bad. Or maybe it's absolutely unbelievably awful. What this raises is a loss of belief in our own power. In our power as people. At least we could look at somebody else and say they've got more power than we do. We are weak people. But what we're saying here is that humankind is weak. In a way, we are like the people who worship the calf. We worship the God made of our own ears, of our own global community. And now there's a reckoning. We face the limits of our own power, of our own knowledge. We are limited. Despite the wonders we beheld in our lives, the longest human lifespans ever seen uh, in the lives of our parents, the, the redemption of the land of Israel, uh, a tremendous period of peace and wealth and, and, and tremendous blessings, billions of people brought out of poverty, right? The, 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 the poverty rate today, extreme poverty rate, something like 2 billion people have been brought out of extreme poverty since 1990. We're looking at it, the tremendous successes of humankind. And now we're just being reminded that we're not quite as powerful as we think. Corona is not the death of humankind. It is like the 3,000 people killed out of the 2 million who were killed with the sin of the calf. It's a small number, but it threatens the core of our self-defined divinity. And just as with Moshe's reaction to the golden calf, it literally tears our communities apart. We're separated from one another at least in a physical sense. And of course, the worst might still be yet to come. But we don't need to lose faith. Now, I confess, I'm not one of those people who's praying to God for resolution to the crisis. I don't think saying Tehillim, Psalms, is going to affect this catastrophe. Moshe, Moses, didn't rescue the people by crying for forgiveness. He rescued the people by insisting that God must rescue us in order to rescue himself, his own reputation. The whole purpose of the creation of the world depended on our survival. But God's redemption in that case was not open-ended. He didn't say, I'm going to bless you with whatever you want. He said, I'm going to make distinctions. I'm going to make distinctions. And before the sin of the calf, national punishments were offered only for the mistreatment of the widow and the orphan. Only for extreme uh, corruption of a society was there a national punishment. But after the sin of the calf, national punishments abound. Because the contract we have with God changes at the sin of the calf. Before, our blessings served as witnesses to the presence of God. 
but afterwards our curses do as well. This week, we also read a special Torah reading called Parshat Para. Para means cow. It's a feminine cow. Parshat Para is considered one of the most difficult to understand parshiots. I actually think that that's uh, mischaracterized as such. I think it's actually not difficult to understand. It's symbolic, but I don't think it's meant to be difficult to understand. Parshat Para talks about the the special formulation that is used after somebody is exposed to death to return them to a community, uh, a pure community, a community that is not tainted by the loss of potential. So Parsha Para is about the red heifer. And the idea is that you take the red heifer and you burn it and you put the ashes in water and you sprinkle them with cedar and with this grass um, and you spr- uh, you sprinkle them on those who have suffered uh, exposure to death, to in- impurity, which of course is the loss of potential, and you sprinkle it on them and by virtue of that, they become pure. And the people who are involved in making the paraduma and burning the cow and slaughtering it, whatever it is, they're impure for a little while, um, until they themselves dip into the waters and become pure. So the symbolism of this is interesting. The word dam means blood. Adam has blood within him, and Adama is land. And in the, the, the Torah, the masculine tends to represent will. This is for biological reasons. A man can will a child onto a woman. I mean, obviously they have limits in their ability to necessarily carry it out, but they're the ones who, who, unfortunately, you can rape a person. And by virtue of rape, you can impregnate somebody who's unwilling to be impregnated. Of course, in modern times, we have ways of dealing with that that are different. Um, but historically speaking, that was the reality. But no matter how much a man might will a child, a man can't actually bear a child. That requires the feminine. The woman can actually actualize the reality of a child. So the same idea works with Adam, which means man, and Adama, which is earth. Mankind can plant crops, but only the earth can yield those crops. Only the earth has the potential. Man has will, but the earth has potential. So Dam means blood. It gives us our potential. And Adam is a, a being whose will is enabled by his blood, by his potential. But Adama is the earth. The red heifer in Hebrew is the para, that's the female cow, Aduma. It's the same word as Adama, just it means red in this case. It's a slightly different, uh, slightly different use of the same letters. Aduma implies potential. And this is a cow that's perfect has no flaws, perfectly red, and has never been worked. None of its potential has ever been converted into reality. And so when you take this cow and you turn it into ashes and you put it in the water, water's the way in which we, we in biology, you, you, you can take toxins out of a cell and you can put nutrients into a cell. Likewise, water can spiritually renew us. And you combine it with cedar, which in the Middle East is the oldest and deepest growing tree. It's the second, I think, second oldest tree in the world behind the uh, giant sequoia. Uh, you, you have deep roots, and then you have the sezov, which is this grass. 
Um, and I think it's it's grass that just um, it flows. Uh, kind of, I think it's from the same source as the word, same roots as the word mizbeach or zavat chalavudvash, the land flowing with milk and honey. It's the idea of gradual change. And so you combine these ideas of infinite capability, and the para is the feminine form of par, which is a cow, which represents a nation. So the nation has this infinite capability. And it's this capability is spread onto a person, is given onto a person through a sprinkling using our deep roots and our capability to change. This represents an antidote to exposure to loss and destruction. We have infinite potential as a nation because of the depth of our history and our traditions, and also because of our ability to change the world. And this Recipe, this dipping is done on the third and the seventh day, the day in which life is created and the day in which life is given purpose. So when we face the loss of potential, when we face death, we counteract it by remembering that we have infinite potential gifted to us by the creator of our universe. He or she who created life and gave human life purpose. In the months ahead, we're going to face challenges. I don't think our goal should be to look to Hashem to rescue us. Our goal should be to learn from the lessons of this plague so that we can emerge greater than we were only a few months ago. I define Judaism in very simple terms. We are to follow in the footsteps of God. And what does God do first? He or she creates for six days, calling it good, and rests on the seventh, which is holy. The Sabbath is never called good. Heaven is never called good. They're holy. There is a balance between creation and rest, a cycle between these two goods, between these two goals, goodness and holiness. We imitate Hashem by creating and then investing that creation in the timeless. Hashem doesn't have to invest his creation in the same way, but we do. So we fight risk and loss, which are evil, by creating good and then investing in the holiness, in charity, in days of rest in that which is timeless, in our relationship with God. We live in a world of constant creation, a world of good. That's our modern reality. People are working constantly. People are creating constantly. We have tremendous goods, literally using the word for products, uh, in our reality. This is what we've seen. Now, the virus has come. And during the time of the virus, we have to reach out to others and help them through their struggles. This is about holiness. This is about fighting loss and destruction and enabling people to experience more time in the face of that destruction. This is about investing our goodness in holiness. In the years to come, we will remember these few months for the rest of our lives. And they will be remembered beyond our lives because these coming weeks are about understanding the infinity of our potential despite the limits of our power. Even in the face of death, we are unlimited. And we have an opportunity to learn that there are realities far greater than ourselves or even our human community. There is a timelessness that we can be a part of. And a recognition, the very recognition of our limits can unlock our ability to become a part of that timelessness. I started a group on Facebook called Kindness in the Age of Corona. It's about using community to help one another, to lift one another up, 
It's not about the power of the crowd. It's the power of individuals to engage in acts of holiness and thus become a part of the greatest reality we can ever be a part of. In the coming weeks, may we all be blessed and may every blessing and every curse be an opportunity to bring beauty to our souls. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.